Welcome to Hour 2 of the Jason Rand Show. Josh Hammer filling in for Jason. You can check out my own show, The Josh Hammer Show, everywhere you get your podcast. Jason, of course, is off for a few days for his brand new book, What's Killing America? Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities. Available everywhere books are sold. Go ahead and check it out. In the meantime, let's find out what's trending. What's trending in Amazonia? Well, it's funny because I was actually just checking out Jason's book on Amazon.com, his brand new book, What's Killing America. And Amazon is having a rough day. The Washington-based company is, is having a very rough day because the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, which is one of the two antitrust enforcement bodies of the federal government, along with 17 state attorneys general, has filed a, a massive antitrust lawsuit against Amazon. This is notable for, for many reasons. On the one hand, this should simply be seen, I think, as the continuation of the bipartisan pushback against our big tech oligarchs. Now, true, this is only 17 state attorneys general joining this particular litigation, but it was only a couple weeks ago, actually, that another sweeping attorneys general-led litigation on antitrust grounds against Google – actually got underway a trial in Washington, D.C. That litigation against Google is, I, I think it's literally all 50 state attorneys general, actually. So uh, virtually 40, 49 or 50 state a- AGs agree that Google is a monopolist in violation of the Sherman and Clayton antitrust laws. Fewer, it seems, think that Amazon is, at least on the theory of this particular case, on the actual law and facts outlined in this particular case, now, Lena Khan, the controversial FTC chair, she is known for her work on Amazon. In fact, it was her paper that she wrote, her, her law review article, her note that she wrote when she was a student at Yale Law School. She wrote a, an article in January 2017 titled Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. For those of you who actually follow antitrust law, you know this is a bit of a play on words. She's making a kind of cute and sly reference, you might sh- you might say, to Robert Bork's famous work from the late 1970s, The Antitrust Paradox, which came to define much of antitrust law in America. Now, Lena Khan is herself a progressive. She, she is a lefty, a, a, you might even say a dyed-in-the-wool progressive. But her confirmation vote before the U.S. Senate actually attracted a lot of bipartisan support. Some of the more populist-inclined senators, people like Josh Hawley of Missouri on the Republican side of the aisle, were vocal proponents of Lena Khan. As someone myself who is very outspoken against big tech's various abuses, I actually was just on the road Literally last week, I was in upstate New York speaking at both Cornell Law School and Syracuse University Law School literally on this topic, on fighting the big tech menace was how I titled my presentation. So as someone who was pretty invested in this topic myself, I also had no particular qualms with Lena Khan despite the fact that she and I probably disagree on the vast majority of issues. But we agree that big tech in America has way, way too much power. Now, Lena Khan has 
not necessarily been highly successful, though. No matter what you might think of her various theories, her rethinking of antitrust orthodoxy, she hasn't been very successful. She's brought a number of high-profile suits that have thus far not paid dividends, and she's been reprimanded by a lot of folks around her for abusing authority, allegedly, and things like that. It's worth noting that despite the bipartisan nature of her senatorial confirmation, that the 17 state attorneys general who joined this particular sweeping lawsuit are not particularly bipartisan. They're all blue states with the notable exception of Oklahoma, which is kind of funny because Oklahoma is arguably the reddest of all red states. In fact, I don't think a single county, a single county in the state of Oklahoma has voted for the Democratic presidential nominee going back to like the 08 or 04 presidential election. I think 04. Really wild stuff. And, you know, I was talking with with some friends earlier today in some other red state attorneys general offices that, that, that decided not to join this particular lawsuit. And they found this complaint not legally meritorious. They said that Lena Khan, the FTC, wasn't even clear exactly what remedy they were seeking other than, frankly, just busting up Amazon and forcing them to divest their various lines of product. I haven't had the time to do a truly, truly deep dive of this particular legal complaint. On a quick skim, I see some of what some of these friends are talking about. But I, like Lena Khan, have also argued for years that Amazon is, in many ways, a monopolistic actor. Amazon, for years, notoriously, notoriously prioritized in its search engine, its internal algorithms, its own products over third-party vendors who were usually paying large fees simply to access the Amazon marketplace. It would, in other words, Amazon would algorithmically rank, would effectively try to dupe the consumer into buying its own products over those of third-party vendors who were rel relying on that very marketplace as their main, if not only, access point to the broader market. Others, such as the Wall Street Journal, have straight up alleged, and they've had the documents, they've had the proof to show it. They've alleged intellectual property theft and various other shenanigans like that, similarly from Amazon's internal lines, Amazon Basics, for essentially stealing that from third-party vendors. And in some ways, Amazon just really is a monopoly. So I think about the e-reader market, the Kindle market, where Amazon has roughly an 83% market share. Given the percentage of Americans who read their books now on Kindle versus hard copy, and you know Jason's own new book, What's Killing America, is no – it's certainly no exception to this. I mean anyone who writes a book has to, has to face this reality. The reality is that we are all reliant on Amazon as a gatekeeper, and if they make a, if they make a highly subjective decision to just nuke a book – from the Kindle e-reader marketplace for no reason, then we will all suffer for that. So in many ways, I, I do find Amazon to be a, a very, very problematic company. This is even holding aside the way that they 
treat many of their workers, which has received a lot of scrutiny. We've all heard the stories of the folks who are peeing in water bottles in the warehouses because they can't even make it to the bathroom in time, things like that. Anyway, that was just filed earlier today. It's it's big news. It's big news in the big tech world. Whether this is the actual kill shot certainly remains to be determined. But this lawsuit has been anticipated for a very long time, and it's filed right here in the state of Washington. It's filed in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Washington. It is a huge, huge test for for Amazon, no doubt about that. It'll be interesting to see whether some folks, Amazon's own lawyers, it'll be interesting to see whether they actually argue that Lena Khan herself should somehow be recused from this various proceeding, this endeavor, because of her prior work specifically on their company. Again, her 2017 Yale Law Journal article that went viral and kind of skyrocketed her to fame was literally about Amazon. The title of the paper was Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. So very, very interesting stuff here. Again, relevant for you, Seattle, because that is filed right here locally in the Western District of Washington. So I want to segue here to talk about something that we touched on towards the end of hour three, which is the situation over in Ukraine and Vladimir Zelensky and all of that. There's actually a lot going on as far as international news, what's happening around the world. And I want to just kind of touch on some of what is going on there. So let's let's start with Ukraine and then work our way outward from there. So Vladimir Zelensky was in the United States last week. He was at the United Nations. He met with the president of the United States, Joe Biden. He met with Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer. He, he met with a lot of people. The goal of his visit is pretty straightforward. The goal of his visit was to get more funding for his conflict against Vladimir Putin. Really, more accurately, we should say Vladimir Putin's conflict against Vladimir Zelensky. Russia, of course, is obviously the aggressor in, in this particular conflict. And winding down the U.S. taxpayers' commitment to this conflict is one of the many demands that McCarthy's hard-right rebels, the Matt Gaetzes of the world, Mar uh, Lauren Boebert, folks like that, what they are demanding be part of any new deal, any CR, continuing resolution, anything that might avert a shutdown, or really, ideally speaking, if you want to go back to actual regular order, any kind of appropriations bill for the Department of Defense and so forth for the next budget cycle. And the polling increasingly shows that this is the side where the American people are on, even if it is not the side still to this day that the bipartisan elites in Washington, D.C. of both parties, the ruling class, is on. The reality on the ground is that we are now over a year and a half into this conflict between Russia and Ukraine, for which Russia, like I said, is obviously the aggressor. But we have now seen the Russian military be utterly humiliated. The Russian military is not worth the paper it is written on. Putin himself, of course, was almost taken out in a mutiny in June earlier this summer 
from Yevgeny Prigozhin of the Wagner Group. Prigozhin, of course, died in a in an aerial incident that looked a heck of a lot like a murder. But the point is that Russia is not in great shape. On the other side of the equation, Zelensky's international standing has never been higher, and yet he continues to go around the world saying that he will not countenance the possibility, he will not even contemplate the possibility of yielding one square inch for peace. He is all in to the very last inch of disputed territory in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass area and Crimea and so forth. Now, my stance on this since the beginning of the conflict has been very straightforward. If I were a Ukrainian, if I were you, if I were a Ukrainian nationalist, I would love Vladimir Zelensky. I would love everything that he is doing when it comes to trying to get the United States and really NATO to join this conflict against Russia, risking, I would add, World War III in the process. The difference is that I am not a Ukrainian. I am an American. And the very straightforward point that I have tried to make over and over again since this conflict started is that though, the, though there is clearly overlap, though there is clearly overlap between the American national interest and the Ukrainian national interest when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine war, it is obviously not synonymous. The U.S.'s primary national interest in this conflict is for a viable off-ramp for all parties involved, Zelensky, Putin, everyone, and for some modicum of stability in what has historically been an incredibly tumultuous part of Europe where the borders are constantly shifting, sometimes seemingly every decade. That is what prudent American statesmanship at this time would actually call for. It would call on putting pressure on both sides, Zelensky and Putin, to get to the, to the negotiating table and at a bare minimum to stop this ceaseless – military, defense, industrial complex provided funding of a foreign war that at this point bears a very tangential, if any, interest to the median American voter. I, I mean, really, I mean, I mean, just to like say it straightforward, does the average American who is struggling to pay his gas bills, who's worrying about wage stagnation and job precarity, does he really care? about whether 50-50 ethnically divided Ukrainian-Russian towns in far eastern Ukraine ultimately get grouped up under the borders of Russia or Ukraine? I mean, really? Really? At the same time, you cannot ignore the mistakes that Zelensky is making. There was this huge, huge incident over the weekend. So after he was in the U.S., he jetted off to Ottawa, Canada. Zelensky was. And it turns out that the Speaker of Canada's House of Commons, their version of the House of Representatives, introduced before that body. So Zelensky is speaking there. And the Speaker of the Canadian House, a guy by the name of Anthony Rhoda, he introduces one of his constituents named Yaroslav Hunka. And he calls him a quote-unquote hero 
from Ukraine's World War II-era history. Now, anyone who is at all familiar with Ukraine's World War II-era history knows that it is a very dark and ugly history. Every American Jew grows up, of course, knowing that the Germans were ultimately responsible for the atrocities of the Holocaust. But there were really two countries, perhaps, above all, whose local populations were the most vicious of all towards the Jews, rounding them up, killing them any way they could. Those would be the Lithuanians and the Ukrainians. If you're not familiar with the horrors, the mass genocide at Babiar, go ahead and Google it. That was Vladimir Zelensky's countrymen 80 years ago. And as it turns out, the Canadian House of Commons Speaker Anthony Rhoda, when he introduced 98-year-old Yaroslav Hunka as a, quote, Ukrainian hero, a Canadian hero, do you know who Yaroslav Hunka fought for? He was a Nazi. He served with a Nazi SS unit. Do you know what Zelensky did in the Canadian House of Commons after Anthony Rhoda introduced him? Well, first of all, there were two standing ovations from the Canadian lawmakers, no doubt virtually all of whom probably had no idea what they were standing for. I mean, these are obscure facts. So they stand to applaud him. And then Zelensky, who himself is nominally at least Jewish, raises his fist in solidarity with this former Nazi soldier. And you had various Canadian Jewish groups call for an apology and so forth there. If there has been an apology, I haven't necessarily seen it, although just as we were coming on air tonight, the Canadian House Speaker, Anthony Rhoda, has actually resigned. I mean, talk about a scandal. Wow. In any event, I am just done at this point with the endless, no-strings-attached funding to Ukraine. I'm, I was happy to see a letter recently co-written by Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio, Congressman Chip Roy of Texas, and some others calling for meaningful, meaningful answers to such basic questions as what is our off-ramp, what is our endgame, things like that, unless and until those questions are answered at a bare minimum, at a bare minimum, unless and until these basic questions are answered for a country as corrupt as Ukraine, for a country with as complicated a history as Ukraine, surely, surely, we should get answers to that before we start giving more and more American taxpayer money. Finally, another big story foreign policy-wise last week, which is also adjacent to the UN, was the rumors of Saudi Arabia possibly joining the Abraham Accords circle of peace with Israel really reached a fever pitch. So you had this side-by-side -side interviews these side-by-side -side interviews with Fox News' Brett Baer. First, you had Mohammed bin Salman, the, the telegenic young crown prince of Saudi Arabia who really calls the shots there. Gave a very, very interesting interview with Brett Baer in Saudi Arabia where he was optimistic about the chances of peace with Israel, so they, that they're getting closer and closer every day. Was not particularly bullish about the Palestinians. He made no explicit demand for a Palestinian state or anything of the like. He seemed very keen, in other words, in integrating Israel fully into the Arab world. And then you had Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu give a similarly optimistic 
interview with Brett Bayer as well. Netanyahu devoted large swaths of his remarks before the UN General Assembly to this particular topic. That piece, if it actually materializes, would be simply transformative. Saudi Arabia is the big kahuna in the Arab world. It is the custodian of Islam's holy sites in Mecca and Medina. It would be a huge, huge deal if Saudi Arabia were to join the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan in the Abraham Accords circle of peace. Now, the Saudis have a lot of demands for this. They are, it seems, demanding a civil nuclear program, which would be at loggerheads with traditional Israeli policy of opposing Arab states going nuclear, even, even for civil or peaceful reasons. But the tantalizing prospect of peace with the Arab world's most important country, I think for many, is going to be just too, too tantalizing to pass up. And we're going to see what happens here over the next few months. Netanyahu himself told Brett Bayer, we probably only have a few months to get this deal done before Joe Biden is himself distracted by 2024, the re-election, and all the diplomacy goes out the window there. The original Abraham Accords with the UAE and Bahrain and so forth would never have happened were it not for the Saudis signing off. Now they just have to actually join for real. Very, very exciting stuff for those of us who follow Middle East foreign policy closely. Many of us should be praying, indeed, that peace does happen in its fuller form. Once again, join us for the next KTTH Freedom Series, Saving Washington State. Hosted by Jason Rance and Brian Suits at the historic Everett Theater on October 24th. Tickets are on sale today for $7.70 plus fees. VIP packages that include a copy of Jason's new book are still available as well. Special guests include Republican gubernatorial candidates Dave Reichert and Semi Bird. Get your tickets at KTTH.com. Sammamish, Lakewood, Bellevue. This is the Big Local on the Jason Ranch Show. Bellingham, Kirkland, Zeta. Stories about you, not about Seattle. The Big Local is brought to you by Alpine Special Cleaners online at alpineclean.com. This is the part where we shift the focus from Seattle to the communities where you live. First up, the Burien City Council approves a controversial anti-camping ordinance amid internal strife. So the city council there voted four to three to approve this ordinance during a meeting just last night. It will take effect on November 1st. After this ordinance takes effect, it's going to be a misdemeanor to camp on public property between the hours of 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. when shelter space is available seems to me like that's doing a lot of the work there, that particular caveat, when shelter space is available. I guess we'll see. Let's take a look to what the deputy, or take a listen to what the deputy mayor, Kevin Schilling, says about how this might promote safety in the community. We all should be upset that it's taken so long. And now we're at a point where we just need to make sure that kids are safe, families are safe, uh, multifamily zones are safe, schools are safe. I mean, that's obviously correct. That's obviously admirable. Um, you know, the homeless pandemic sweeping across the whole country is not exactly news. Unfortunately, 
those those in Seattle, I think, are, are, are very familiar with the with the sensation. You know, it's certainly not unique to Seattle. It's certainly not unique to Burien. I mean, this is something that has been happening really all across large swaths of the country. Again, the, the question that I have, I, I guess, looking at this is that caveat that I read earlier, when shelter space is available. So what if shelter space is not available? Then I guess you're going to be able to just camp on on public property anyway i i'm getting a little lost in 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 the weeds here but you know certainly credit credit very much so to the city council for doing this one thing that astonishes me i mean this is a four to three vote i mean this is this is this this is a very close down the line vote this is the equivalent of like a five four u.s supreme court decision obviously on a much smaller scale there on the very city council but who is voting against this I mean, seriously, like, like, who is actually voting against this? Well, I mean, it turns out that Councilmember Sydney Moore said that she was, quote, incredibly disappointed that the ordinance passed. This is a quote from Councilmember Moore, who, again, opposed this common sense legislation. She says, we have a $1 million, 35 pallet shelters on the table. Are we going to use it or keep shuffling people around, making their crisis worse? Ultimately, the people who oppose these kind of common sense ordinances, these anti-camping ordinances, I'm not sure what they want. I'm genuinely not sure what they want. It's easy to say you want universal housing. Unfortunately, the laws of supply and demand and basic resource scarcity dictate that not everything we want is easily achievable. Uh, Producer Max, I'm curious for your take on this story. Yeah, I've actually uh, I've done some coverage uh, on this over the past several months. Um, it's a big deal that they finally got some sort of ordinance passed. They've kind of just been shifting this problem encampment around to different parts of the city down there in Burien. And it's just been a long, ongoing saga. I actually had one of the, the council members, Stephanie Mora, who we've had on the show several times in the past, text me last night. She was very excited that at least they have something on the board it's not a not a perfect ordinance by any means and they are still struggling for shelter space down there but josh it's it's a great thing that they were finally able to get some legislation passed to finally do something to promote some public safety down there in that burian community they've been really battling with this council uh, trying to get things uh, approved with this ordinance for for quite some time so it's a big win uh for people that are on the side of common sense down there in burian Absolutely. No, absolutely. And and a huge credit, of course, for, for, for getting this ordinance passed, even if it even if it's not perfect. I mean, look, rare, rarely will a legislation, a regulation, an ordinance be actually perfect. I mean, politics, of course, is the art of the possible. So huge credit where credit is due. Another story here from Pierce County. A bicycle, bicyclist has tragically died. This bicyclist has been fatally struck in Tacoma, perhaps the worst part of all of this story is that this appears to be, uh, I, I can't even say it, this is terrible, a, targ- a targeted attack. So apparently on Monday morning, yesterday morning at 7.50 a.m., a 911 call reported a crash involving a vehicle and a bicyclist. Really, really dark stuff, on, on, unfortunately here. Let's take a listen to what the Pierce County Sheriff, Sergeant Darren Moss Jr., he explained what happened here. We got somebody out there that ran over a person who was minding their business walking down the roadway. They were hit from behind, and this person just left them there to die. So a witness who saw the incident said that they believe 
it was a hit and run. The collision is being investigated as a homicide. I guess the first thing that I think of when I, I, I read this terrible story is we saw something very similar happen in Las Vegas, Nevada, where someone who was in a car and deliberately ran over a police officer who, if I recall, was on his bike on the side of the road. He was not in the middle of the street. He was exactly where he was supposed to be. And this murderous, murderous thug ran over the police officer. And I, I, again, when it comes to situations like this, if, if it's actually a hit and run, if it's just if it's a tragic accident, then it's horrible that a 51 year old, of course, horrible that someone has has lost his life. If it's truly a hit and run and if it is ultimately revealed to be a homicide, then to me, that fits into this this broader theme that we have seen in lots of suburban and small city communities across the country in recent years, which is just this this general lack of respect for the rule of law. I mean, I mean, I don't know how I'll say it. I mean, it's a general lack of respect for the most basic precepts of the rule of law. It's all these attacks on the police, the fact that we are not enforcing anything, it leads to it's a general devaluation, a degradation of human life itself. And man, if this is actually a hit and run here, that is just really tragic stuff. Uh, anything to add on your end, Producer Max? No, I just going to what you're saying, it just seems like there's just a ton of just horribly tragic incidents like this and, and if this actually was a targeted attack i mean that's it's terrible but yeah the lack of respect for law the rack, lack of respect for fellow man it just seems like you know a couple years ago a handful of years ago it didn't seem like we saw incidents like this with such frequency but it seems like you know every week every couple of weeks you know a few a month we we just have some gruesome incidents like this and it's just awful you feel for feel for the family of that 51 year old man who was struck Truly, no, horrible, horrible stuff. Finally, we go to Renton. A Renton man is held on $250,000 bail after the police say he strangled an officer. So this is yesterday. It was Monday afternoon. A 22-year-old 20, man, excuse me, is facing a judge after allegedly strangling a police officer over the weekend. Let's go ahead and listen to a King County prosecutor talking about how the defendant created a dangerous situation. Ran several stop signs while the officer pursued him with lights, sirens. He ran a red light, got into a collision with another vehicle. He just keeps on going. He wasn't deterred by anything. I mean, very similar story in some ways. Again, just a, just a general lack of respect for the rule of law here a pursuit with the police ensued investigators said the suspect crashed head-on with another vehicle the innocent bystander thankfully was not hurt there i guess the one silver lining that i see from this story is that two fifty thousand dollars is a respectably high level of bail um you know there's been a large trend in largely urban areas in recent years to to quote-unquote bail reform, to get rid of bail. You hear the defund the police crowd say that cash bail is anachronistic. At its worst, perhaps, it is even outright racist because it disproportionately affects blacks and, and Hispanics. So, I, I mean, all, obviously, that is totally, totally nonsensical. And the fact that there is a quarter-million-dollar bail for something of this nature strikes me as, as common sense and a good thing. Uh, Producer Max, what's your reaction to this story? 
No, and, and that's exactly the, the point, Josh. We don't see in this area, especially in King County specifically, we don't see a ton of high bail numbers set at all. I, I believe the uh, the defense attorney uh, requested that the defendant be let out on his own recognizance. And, and oftentimes these stories have a different ending. We see dangerous people that are being let back out onto the street. So so kudos to the judge in this situation. We don't have a, the name for that judge. Cause oftentimes on this program we point out uh, when judges don't do their job and let people out on, on low bonds. But we'd like to give the judge some, some credit in this instance. $250,000 bond is, that seems fitting for something pretty uh, horrendous like stealing a cop car and you know threatening a cop hurting a cop like these are some crazy stuff so at least uh, in this instance the judge did something that that seems right and set a, a very high bond yeah i mean you want to talk about trying to get respect back for the rule of law get respect back for the idea of law enforcement setting a bail of this monetary value for something of this nature it is a very very good and healthy way, I think, to try to get people back into respecting the rule of law. So, again, credit here where credit is due. Again, this is a rent-a-man hailed on, on a quarter-million-dollar bail. Very, very high amount. Credit where credit is due in this particular instance. So, coming up, coming up soon at 445, you pick the news. Story number one, Target to close nine stores in West Coast crime hubs. That's story number one. Or story number two, one year later, AOC continues to suggest she will trade in her non-union made Tesla. Let us know what story you want to hear. You can text story one or story two to 1-800-465-8770. That's 1-800-465-8770. Your favorite story coming up after this on the Jason Ranch Show. Pick the topic on the Jason Rand Show. So you pick the news, and you have chosen to talk about Target closing nine stores, citing theft that threatened workers and shoppers. Although, to be candid, I kind of like the other option as well here quite a bit, this hypocrisy when it comes to AOC. So we'll see if we can't get to her as well. But we will start with your selected story, which is target so this news just dropped earlier today target is closing nine stores across four states including one in new york city in harlem three in san francisco and additionally some stores in portland oregon and right here in seattle washington and it is closing these stores because it does not trust the safety of the shoppers and the workers who are there because retail crime has has apparently just gotten that, that bad. Now, it's not surprising that the plurality of these stores, three out of the nine, are being closed in San Francisco, which, of course, is ground zero for liberal insanity. It is the epicenter of all that is wrong with urban America, or specifically all that is wrong with big blue urban America. Now, these it's worth noting that these closings, again, is just nine. This is a small fraction, a tiny fraction of the 1,900 stores that Target is operating nationwide. But it, it does, nonetheless, I think, 
shine a spotlight on the various challenges that brick-and-mortar retailers are facing in this era of spiking crime, of what we were just talking about during the big local segment, of this lack of respect for the rule of law, and of people just increasingly going in and stealing stuff and then walking out. And so much of this, again, gets back to this post-George Floyd, post-Black Lives Matter riots mentality, which is that simply enforcing the law, simply enforcing anti-shoplifting laws, things of that nature, many say that that is somehow racist and this and that. You know, there was a story out of Georgia a month and a half, two months ago, where an employee was fired, fired, for having the temerity to call the police, to call 911 to report a shoplift. Apparently, it was the store's internal policy to just let shoplifters get away with it, lest we exacerbate so-called systemic racism, things like that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not making this up. I, I saw, I saw Eric Erickson the radio host down in Georgia, talking about it because it was a local story there in Georgia. Really just crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. Now, we can't separate the Target news from what Target has been facing over the past few months. So during so-called Pride Month in late May and really heading into June, Target got a lot of flack, a lot of flack from conservatives for – having a lot of, shall we say, controversial, that will be a polite way of saying it, controversial items line the stores. Those of us remember the so-called tuck-friendly paraphernalia, the tuck-friendly clothing that Target was putting in stores in an effort to appeal to transgender customers, or really more accurately, it should be said, to appeal to the Disproportionately white, liberal, secular, urban women who tend to support these causes zealously. That's really who Target was trying to, to support there. And their stock plummeted. Tar Target's stock has taken an absolute beating. In fact, really kind of putting that in the context of the pushback against Dylan Mulvaney and Bud Light and all of that, this is kind of the first summer – that the axiom that you go woke, you go broke, that it really did prove to be true. And Target had a lot to do with it. So should we feel bad for Target? Well, I mean, it's tough to feel bad for a company that is this out there culturally. The question that I have when it comes to this particular story, when it comes to a company that is as woke as Target – that is nonetheless closing stores in iconic blue jurisdictions like San Francisco, Portland, New York City. Are you ever going to learn? Are you going to stop shilling, being a pawn, a useful idiot in the culture war for a party that is electing prosecutors in cities like New York City, San Francisco, and so forth that are dedicated to the proposition the law shall not be enforced? Or for the sake of your own bottom line, if nothing else, are you going to realize that it's time to stop, stop peddling this insane garbage? 
that is the million-dollar question for me, at least, when I see something like this. Again, it is a very small fraction of Target's stores, but the story nonetheless has, I think, some serious valence and legs beyond that for for that question and that question only. Hard to say that I'm optimistic that Target will learn the right lessons here. Perhaps if the pain continues, perhaps if more stores have to close because they cannot keep their own employees safe, ultimately who wins out, or excuse me, ultimately who loses out from a store like Target closing? Obviously, it's the consumer. It's a consumer who wants reasonably priced goods from a store like Target. So from that perspective, I do feel bad. From the perspective of Target's tuck-friendly clothing lines and all the woke garbage that that company invariably peddles, tough to feel too bad for the Minnesota-based company. So let's go ahead and talk about the other story that you didn't choose, but I nonetheless think is quite funny. So this story is how one year later, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is continuing to suggest that she will trade in her non-union-made Tesla. So this was an interview that AOC, the Democratic Party's it girl that she had on Face the Nation on CBS on Sunday. She was talking about the UAW strike where Joe Biden currently is, where Donald Trump will soon be in Michigan. And she has a Tesla from Elon Musk's company that is non-union made. And I mean, I mean, just listen to her try to stumble her way out of this. This is AOC on Face the Nation yesterday. She goes, quote, our car was purchased during the pandemic when travel before a vaccine had come out. So travel between New York and Washington, the safest way we had determined. But that was prior to some of the new models coming out. The market had the range available. So we're looking into, into trading our car in now. We're looking into it. Hopefully we'll be soon. Look, ultimately, the reason I find this story hilarious is that these people are just so utterly hypocritical. I mean, everyone who has followed the news over the past decade knows about all the climate change hysterics who jet around the world and their Gulf Streams. They're jetting into Davos, the World Economic Forum, into Sun Valley, Idaho for various climate summits. Leo DiCaprio, John Kerry, they're all just jetting around. The hypocrisy is through the roof. Do you want to know why Congress has such an abysmal approval rating? Well, part of it is the fact that Congress has shown itself completely incapable of actually passing legislation that will help the American people, that will actually tangibly make a better difference in their lives. They're focused on all the wrong stuff. We were talking about Ukraine earlier in this hour. Part of it, though, as well, is the fact that you have idiots, yes, idiots, like AOC, who are just totally, totally hypocritical to the point where you cannot take these people even remotely seriously. I mean, does, does the Democratic Party purport to stand with labor unions? Do they purport to stand with the working men in Michigan or not? Also, really ironic, I should add, that AOC, one of the most visibly iconic far-left members in all of Congress – would have a Tesla at this point in the first place, given all of the culture warring that Elon Musk has been engaged in recently, especially since he acquired Twitter. 
curious to see how that is going for AOC. Difficult to see, I think, her actually acting on her words. She, you know, she had a follow-up post on Twitter, X, whatever we're calling it, referring to Elon Musk as some billionaire with an ego problem. Hilarious stuff. I mean, hypocrisy through the roof there on that one. Josh Hammer filling in for Jason Rance here on KTTH Seattle. We'll be back with Hour 3 of the program. <laughs> 